Blog Talk Radio. The following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Hi, my name's John Carasella, and I'm your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Convergence is to consciousness as gravity is to the material world. In small amounts, gravity is overwhelmed by every other fundamental force of the universe. But gravity has something nothing else has. It's cumulative. The more matter you collect, the more gravity you get, until it becomes the most powerful force of the material world. I think convergence is like that too. Only in this case, we're working with truth. The more truth we collect, the more convergence we experience. Connections, relationships, resonance of ideas and concepts, science and mysticism. Lately, deep truths just seem to be coming together, even as many of the illusions around us are falling apart. As within, so without. As above, so below. I know I'm feeling it, and I'll bet you are too. For the next 90 minutes, we'll be exploring concepts and topics that in some way or another bring us around to a deeper truth. Join me and my guests for this week's experience of Convergence. Welcome everyone to Convergence. I'm your host, John Carousella, together with my co-hosts, Hi C. Hello. Deb. Good morning. And Mildred Lynn. Hello, John. And we're here for our Firefly Willows L-I-V-E roundtable. Um, and this time I'm, I'm going really far afield from my normal topics. And it's because lately I've been experiencing something very, very strange. Uh, and that is entertainment. I have never really valued entertainment. In, in a lot of ways, much like I never really valued plants that were just ornamental, you know, like just flowering plants. If they if they flowered but didn't produce edible fruit, I really didn't have a lot of interest in them. And it's also one of the main reasons that I don't read fiction. But recently I've been opening up to a different possibility, uh, a possibility that something that's entertaining might be valuable intrinsically just because it's entertaining. And this is such a new perspective for me that, that I'm actually asking for some perspective and some help from my co-hosts here. Now, you know, full disclosure, I think in our culture, we have a very mixed relationship with entertainment. Um, we have lots of it, you know, TV, the internet, Hollywood, music, spectator sports, and so on. But I'm not sure that we have a healthy way of consuming it. It seems like we compulsively or even addictively consume it. And, that a lot of it is like junk food. It's like not, it doesn't have value in it, which I guess is one of the reasons why I was, you know, at least one of the reasons why I went down this path where I discarded entertainment as having value at all. But at the same time, I'm not a very good judge. So um, I guess I'd like to ask my co-host to share, you know, what is it you find entertaining? Why is that particular thing entertaining for you? What does entertainment do for you in general? And why is that important? Any any thoughts, guys? I have always enjoyed entertainment. 
I find it um, entertaining. Um, I have always found value in it. And I have never really gotten too hung up on the waste of one's time when one um, indulges in something as you know frivolous as entertainment, and not and you know all kinds of entertainment, uh, the reading books, reading fiction, uh, reading stories, gardening, flower, you know, looking at, or even just taking a walk through a garden. Not the active pursuit of putting the plants in the ground and caring for them, but simply being in the presence of a natural setting that is not asking anything of you other than to be there and to be present with it. And there are all kinds, as you mentioned, all kinds of entertainment and some I find more in tune with myself than, than others. Um, I'm not much of a sports person. I don't watch a lot of sports. Um, I certainly don't go to, you know, live action events. Um, I prefer books and I love TV and I love movies. I'm not that fond of live theater there's the suspension of disbelief that I can't quite get in live theater that I can find in movies and in television. So what is it you get? How do these things serve you? How does, how do TV and movies and books serve you? What do they do for you when you're being entertained? What, what is it about entertainment? That's that, that I find books, and movies in particular, maybe a little bit more so than television, um, doorways, uh, portals to time periods, experiences, adventures that I can have that I would not have in my own skin, that I would not have here in the, in the reality of who I am. It, it allows me to open myself up to all kinds of possibilities and, and newness in a safe place. And I like that. I value that. I find it freeing and, um, and it's not just freeing, but it, it's enriching. And um, television, I find, is much more um, personal. Uh, I, there are certain shows that I watch because I develop a relationship with the characters in the show. And they become important to me. They become important to me like my friends are important to me. And I want to know what's happening with them. I want to follow their experiences. So television is more of a personal event as far as a... a uh, so television is about relationships for you. That's the word I was looking for. Television is about relationships for me, whereas movies and novels um, and stories are about um, losing myself in something different and new. So they're about adventure for you. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> I, folks, I'm actually I'm actually cogitating on on this feedback as as odd as that might sound. This is very useful information for me in trying to understand the value of entertainment. Uh, Mildred Lynn, how about you? Entertainment, basically for me, it shifts my vibration. So it either distracts me or relaxes me or makes me laugh. So it's a shift in vibration. In terms of what type of entertainment, I love movies. I just love going to the movie and sitting there for a couple of hours because I enter another frame of existence. And when I come out, I feel refreshed. So, enter so entertainment gives me that break in my sense of 
of showing up in the world and it helps me reset. So that's what entertainment does for me. And I'm really happy that it's part of the human condition and that we have the capacity to enjoy it. So that's where I put it. Hmm. So it's interesting. You, both you and Debbie said something. Um, Deb, you said, uh, it doesn't ask anything of me. Right? Going to the movies, you, you can go there and just, it doesn't ask anything of you other than to be there. Right. And I, and I got the same sense from you, Mildred Lynn, that, that part of the value of entertainment for you is you get to relinquish your, um, your way of showing up in the world, so to speak. Right. Uh, you said like set, you get to set that down and just be, and just receive. Exactly. It's beautiful and very valuable. Huh. <laughs> Okay. Um, I see. What do you got? <laughs> You're gonna blow my mind again. That's like all three of you. <laughs> well, I think the first thing that needs to be done is you, we have to separate the idea of entertainment from the idea of entertainment business. And I think that entertainment has become so much of a business in our world that it's become overblown as to what it is, what it's supposed to be, what it's supposed to bring us and offer us. And how how do you mean? What what do you mean there? Well, because now, you know, you, you get all of this hype built around things and there's this sense that is created for people that they feel that they are missing out on something important because they haven't seen the number one movie of the weekend or they are totally out of touch with the human race because they can't talk about it, what happened on a television show last night. And people have gotten so used to being entertained by someone or something else that I think that we have almost lost or become very disconnected from our capacity to entertain ourselves. And I think that Entertainment could be something as simple as, you know, sitting on the ground and watching ants build an anthill for an hour. And that could be totally entertaining and could be entertainment for someone. And I think what it shows is that same idea because it's something that for the moment takes you outside of the normal routine, takes you outside of your normal frame of mind uh, and kind of just puts you in a different place. And... That, I think, is the value of entertainment, but I think when we get so used to or so stuck in looking for what entertainment is offered or provided by other people that we also can't find and create our own entertainment, that we become very vulnerable to outside influence rather than us being, because entertainment has become so passive that even, I mean, and I, I'm not one that shuns entertainment, let me just tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, w- I went to school and got a degree in the entertainment field. Um, and I love, you know, television and music and movies and all that kind of stuff. But I, I'm actually not usually, I'd say 98% of the time, I'm not passive, even if I'm watching like a television show. Because in my head, I'm either inserting myself into it or I'm studying the 
the interactions of the people or almost psychoanalyzing the emotional aspect of it and seeing how that applies to the real world. Well, there's all sorts of things going on. Um, but uh, I, I'm entertaining myself in my head while watching some other form of entertainment. Uh, so, but I, I think it would be interesting to hear how people entertain themselves and if they can create their own entertainment versus feeling as if they are bored or don't know what to do if they don't have something that somebody else is offering and creating for them to entertain them. Mm. Well, do, so do we think that um, one of the reasons that, that in America we spend so much time and money on entertainment is that we're fundamentally uh, what, uncomfortable, unhappy, uh, ill at ease. Uh, what what is it that we're? Is there any? Can you shed any light on that? Because that's one of the reasons why I think why I have been so dismissive of entertainment is uh, I've been so dismissive of entertainment is I just don't feel like um, I, I don't know. I feel like there's something wrong with the way we do it. Well, because I, I think I see people, it's it's constantly used as distraction and escape. And it's not that it's wrong to do those things. It's just that in, in our culture, it's used like an addiction. It's used way over how it should be used and how much it should be used. People are always wanting a distraction. They're always wanting something to escape from their everyday life. And so I think people are very disconnected because they're always looking outside of themselves for that rather than spending any time watching the screen of their mind or seeing what's going on within them that could be just as entertaining, but also have a certain element of growth or development or insight versus simply passively watching what somebody else is doing. Yeah, And I invite anybody to comment on this. Is there good entertainment and bad entertainment, just like there's, you know, high quality food and junk food? Well, I think, you know, the short answer is, well, obviously, Mm. Um, but I don't believe that I have. I'm not going to tell you what's junk entertainment and what is quality entertainment. I think each individual determines that for themselves. Um, Now, you know, I mean there are certain things that I would never, ever consider wasting the electricity on, uh, you know, um, that they just don't appeal to me. That doesn't mean that they are, they're junk. They, they appeal to someone. And I'm, and I'm certainly not going to um, make any kind of a value judgment on that. That's, that's not my place. But I agree with High C that we're, I think an awful lot of the time, it is entertainment and outside stimulation is used in an addictive manner. Um, I think that people are just uncomfortable with being quiet. I think they are uncomfortable with, you know, just being in their own presence. And I find that sad. Uh, I, you know, I, I currently am not working outside of the house. I spend many, many, many hours of every day in my home, my television is not on. My, I do not run the stereo constantly. There's not a lot of external stimulation that is um, 
generated by others. I don't require it. I will go online. I'll check my Facebook. I'll look at my emails more than once or twice during the day. I'll touch in. Uh, you know, I'll touch base with what's going on in the outside uh, world. But I'm very happy with quiet. And, you know, the dogs are running around. The cats are doing their thing. I go outside. I walk through my yard. I pick things up. I take care of this. I look at that. Sometimes I just stand there and look out the window and watch the, the leaves blow in the trees. And that's fine. I'm happy with that. And I find that satisfying. And as Ticey mentioned, every once in a while, maybe I'll watch the ants walk across the thing. Um, I don't particularly like watching them make the anthills because that upsets me. But <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't mind them if they walk out of my, my yard. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so... It, that's, I do believe that there is really, there can be a distinction between what's, what could be considered quality entertainment and what can be considered junk entertainment. And I think everyone needs to make that decision for themselves, but I do believe that it's out there. Mm. All right. Any last thoughts from uh, the team here? Help well, me out. Throw me another bone. I will say that I think that some things that are billed as entertainment are not. Because I fail to see how anything that is violent or is about people being violent towards each other is in any way entertainment, be it boxing or dog fighting or, you know, whatever. Uh, because to me, I, I can't see in any way or make any justification for violence to be glorified nor to be considered entertainment of some sort you know some people will argue that things like the real housewives of whatever city you want to throw in there you know is or isn't entertainment well it's entertainment but is it good or is it junk i mean it's pretty vapid but you know whatever but i think that something that starts to get into pitting people against each other and and especially physically being violent towards each other is not entertainment Period. I wouldn't even call it junk entertainment. I would just call it not entertainment, period. But there you are. There's my little soapbox. And, and I would like to add, I really liked what we alluded to earlier, the ability to entertain yourself. So where I come from, people sing a lot and they dance a lot and they still have the ability to embrace the silence and if they didn't want the silence, to entertain themselves. So I'm as we were all talking, I was wondering about have we as a society given away the power to be able to entertain ourselves? Like, have we disempowered ourselves looking for that externally rather mm. than generating it internally? And have we forgotten how wow. to entertain ourselves? Yeah, that's pretty good, Mildred. Lynn. That's very interesting. Have we, have we disempowered ourselves? Huh? All right. Well, we're, we're out of time for the roundtable, but I really do appreciate the input from my three co-hosts. It's been very illuminating and, um, and thought-provoking for me. So, so thanks very much. We will be uh, – we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with the rest of the show. Please stay tuned. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a great Welcome. show, Jeff. Have a good show. Bye. At Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E. We're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest, 
or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable change makers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. And with me for today's spirited conversation is Dr. Tony Gallardi. Dr. Gallardi is the celebrated author of The Life Quake Phenomenon, How to Thrive, Not Just Survive, in Times of Personal and Global Upheaval. Lifequake, as it's come to be called, is a body, mind, and spirit technology for mastering the fear of change and creating a roadmap for a passionate, authentic life. Dr. Tony is known in both broadcast and print media as the Lifequake Doctor, and which is one of the reasons why we have her here today. Quoted in the New York Daily News, New York Post, and a host of other national magazines, she also maintains an advice column called Ask the Lifequake Doctor in both Vision and Counselor magazines. Dr. Gallardi also works with people directly through her lectures, teleclasses, and one-on-one as a transitions strategist and career coach. Dr. Tony, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, John. So um, one of the things that I want to talk about is the lifequake phenomenon. And, you know, the things that I read about it uh, in, in prep for our conversation fascinated me because it describes an arc that doesn't just talk about the, the quake, it talks about reconstruction at, in the aftermath, which I think is, was very powerful. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I want to talk to you about is, is the new thing that you're working on, is Abundanza. And i got to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, there's a, there's a thing that Dr. Tony and I share, and that is that we are delighted by our Italianness. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, so I, I want to dig into that as, mm-hmm. as part of the motivation for, for how and why you do your work. So I want to start there because I want to start with your with your background, uh, mm-hmm. how did you get to be in such delighted p- possession of your Italian heritage? My father is a first-generation Italian immigrant. He, his family immigrated from Naples when he was six years old, so to New York. So I grew up around, and I actually am mixed because my mother is American of German descent. So I grew up around two different kinds of family yeah Yeah, two different cultures but all very family centered on both sides Mm -hmm. for sure so what was it about the italianness that has drawn you it's more my nature you know my the german side of my family was a little more detached and whereas i i just gravitated toward my dad's family because they were touchers and i'm a physical touch person Mm -hmm. and i'm all about connection and food and cooking for people, <laughs> that's my thing. So, Abundanza for you means what? Well, the, it literally translates from Italian as abundance. Right. But for Italians, what that means is, a, you know, generosity. Like, so it's not just with food, but it's, are you Abundanza in terms of how you, how you are with people? Are you generous in your spirit? Mm-hmm. Not just with uh, your things, you know? Right. So the Abundanza method developed because I was looking at what is the biochemistry of change management? Like, what is it that allows a per- one person to be able to master change and another person just kind of digs a, you know, a, an ostrich hole and, and throws themselves into it? Mm-hmm. And I was actually one of those people at a certain point in my life because I was really about financial security and didn't see the signs that it was time to make changes and had to be 
you know, put through major life crises in order to make changes. So uh, you were looking for change management because you were thrust into change management as a as a survival, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. as a life event. Mm-hmm. Um, and and how did the, the spirit of abundance? It was very interesting because I was, you know, looking at, again, studying neuroscience. What does it allow for someone to make changes? And there was a really interesting piece of research that had come up, uh, a clinical study on the effects of oxytocin and that the more oxytocin a person has, the more resilient and adaptive they are in the face of change. So I was on a plane flying to New York. I was going to visit my father's family and go into New York to do some press and for Lifequake. And I was starting the process of looking at what is going to be my next book. And I started thinking about this whole oxytocin piece and how the Italian culture is full of practices that produce oxytocin. And so when I was visiting my aunts on Long Island, I started talking about my grandmother because my Italian grandmother had had so many losses in her life. She lost mm-hmm. her mother as a child. Mm-hmm. She, when she got married, her, she, her second child died in, you know, six months after he was born. Then she came to America, uh, with two children and lost her husband 10 years into being in America. Didn't speak the language, had no formal education and he, they had no insurance. So she was thrust into a hole, like, how am I going to survive? Right. You know, and it was one loss and challenge, but I never knew this woman to, to be a pity party. You know, right. and I asked my aunts, I said, do you, when you recall her growing up, you know, what was she like? They said she was always happy, always optimistic, always had a good thing to say about others, was a very generous person, not just with the food, but with her heart. Right. And so I started to look at what would allow someone to be able to make the kind of changes and develop and adapt to the losses that this woman had to adapt to. And so this oxytocin piece is what, you know, made me start to look at that. Yeah. So you made the connection between your grandmother and her her happiness and the generosity and the optimism uh, and, and oxytocin. I developed these seven practices specific to the Italian culture. I'm sure there are other cultures who probably also, you know, um, practice them. But they came out of looking at my family and what Italians do that that create connection. And connection is what creates and, and uh, stimulates oxytocin. Oh, okay. So is that, the, is that a summary statement that we can make, that connection is what generates oxytocin? Mm-hmm. So, okay, great. So remember that, folks. Connection makes oxytocin, and oxytocin makes you more resilient. Right. So there's a there's high value in the open heartedness that leads to connection. Right. And the more connected you are to someone, the more trust there is. Right. And so it actually begins because I'm also a therapist by training as an inside job. So that if you have are you if you're connected to yourself, if you're doing practices that are part of these seven practices that actually create inner connection to your own wisdom, your own inner wisdom, that's also going to allow you to make changes more easily. So let's explore that a little bit. What does okay. it mean to be connected to yourself? Okay. What, what do, how, do you, how do you draw that out? So the slower that we move, and I don't mean like, you know, moving like you're going through molasses, but the more mindful you are. You know, the, the, one of the criticisms of, that Americans have about Italians when you go to Italy is it's domani, tomorrow, tomorrow, <laughs> well, the, the car will be fixed t- 
tomorrow, <laughs> you know, and it could be three weeks <laughs> before the car gets fixed. <laughs> but they move a lot, you know, they're, they're just they're more relaxed, you know, okay. about the way things are, are run. And so there's something we could actually extract from that, that the more relaxed you are, the, the more you're going to actually be able to hear your inner wisdom. The more relaxed you are, the more ability you'll have to hear your inner wisdom. And that connection to your inner wisdom does what? Well, it helps you to be able to make changes before they hit you over the head. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Score one for, score one for inner wisdom. That's great. Okay. Let's talk through the, the seven pieces of oven. Sure. Sure. So one is the most obvious that, you know, Italians um, practice, which is physical touch, you know, and believe it or not, one of the things that I actually give my clients when I work with people on a one on one, whether that's by phone or they're sitting in front of me, it's the same thing. And that is to learn how to feel comfortable about touching yourself. And I'm not talking about sexually. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm talking about being in touch with when you put lotion on your body. Most people just slap it on, you know, get the job done and, and then, you know, after a shower and then they're on, into their clothes and boom, out the door. And I'm talking about taking the time to actually make contact and have a sensual connection with your body. This is what you see in Italy. You go to Rome, you see that the people have a sensual, there's a way that they are in their bodies that is very sensual. It's because they're connected to their bodies. And what is the, um, what's the spiritual consequence of that? Well, because I believe that the soul lives inside the, you know, the body, mm-hmm. you know, so we know that emotional trauma, for example, uh, lives in the body, you know, and therefore the more connected you are to your inner you know, it's not just your physical body in terms of the the outer physical body but as i mentioned earlier your heart your inner wisdom the more connected you are to that you're going to be living what i call a dharmic life you know a path the path that is highest for you because you're listening inside and the body has wisdom so the capacity to uh experience your physicality in a mm-hmm. sensual way uh, does does what for your spirit? Like to mm-hmm. to be to be a sensual person mm-hmm. um, and to be in in sensual relationship with your own body. Mm-hmm. What's the? Your body becomes a temple. Okay. Therefore, what you put in it, the food you put in it, you know, the substances you put in it, the environments you put it put it in. Um, you think of it in terms of it being a temple. And what would I put in a temple? Would I put garbage in a temple? You know, would I put a temple, would I move a temple into environments where it would be toxic? No. Right. Fantastic. What's next in the Abandonza list? So number two, that, and this came through what, what I received from my Italian grandmother, which was to see the best in everyone. And that, that is, you know, when you are connected, when you actually take the time to make a connection with another human being, even someone who maybe you would have judgments about because they dress funny or mm. whatever, they speak strange, that when you take the time to actually connect with another human being, you will see their soul mm. and you will see the best in them. And so she always had a way of whenever, you know, I would be critical about one of my brothers because I had three brothers, I was outnumbered, no sisters, <laughs> you know, you know, she in her Italian way, she would say, 
you know, be nice, uh, you know, be nice to your brothers. <laughs> so um, that was one of the things that, that I see that Italians, again, that abundanza, that generosity of spirit, you know, was about how do you see the best in other people, you know. And when you go to Italy, what people find infectious that are Americans, not of Italian descent necessarily, about what, when they come back from Italy, I hear this over and over again, is that they're surrounded by love, you know, people that the, the people they, they don't know you, they're strangers and they'll invite you into their home. You know, that there's that loving quality that I think Italians come from unless, you know, unless you do something to, you know, to make that not happen. Yeah. So do you have a sense for or an opinion on why and how American culture doesn't have that connectedness? Or, well, I think it, like seeing the best in someone. Mm-hmm. Do we not have a habitual process or, mm-hmm. or is not part of our culture mm-hmm. to to see the best? I think it's the Puritan work ethic that is in our roots, you know, that what it's about is working hard and being competitive. It's a very, this is a very competitive country. So what is rewarded is somebody who's ambitious, focused, you know. Um, somebody who can win. Yeah. We like winners. Yeah. And winning in our culture tends to relate to competition as, a, as opposed that to That there's somebody who's going to win and somebody's going to lose. Right. And yeah. that, does that preclude or create an impediment to connection? I think it does. Or does it create an impediment to seeing the best in someone? I think it does, you know, because I think that if, if your own focus is just simply on your own endeavors, you know, your own ambition, um, then, you're, then people can become a threat. And then, so you're sizing people up. That's kind of the alpha male mentality of sizing people up. Are they better or are they better than me or are they worse than me in some way? Right. You know, right. are they a competitive threat? Mm-hmm. Whereas in Italy, it's a matriarchal culture. It's, it's a, a feminine culture. Uh, so, okay. That's another thing I want to bring in. Let's talk about the, well, actually, so let's go back to the first one, which is, uh, being in touch with yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Touching. Mm-hmm. Um, is there, is there a skill? that that a feminine influence has in being more connected to her body mm-hmm. than perhaps a masculine-driven person would have? Well, because the masculine is more intellectual, you know, in the sense of um, being focused on, you know, the, the mind. Even, even when you think about athletics, although it requires the body, there's a lot of mental focus, you know, there's, it's about pushing through pain, you know, really ignoring any kind of uh, physical imbalances often to the, to the detriment of the individual. Because it's so, competition. Right. And, and the because goal is to win. Right. Right. The goal is right. not to feel good. The goal is to win. Right. Even if it's, you're competing against yourself, you know. Right. Right. Well, there's another thing that, that um, I was recently contemplating how it's really apparent that because of the nature of women's bodies and the role, their biological role and physiological processes, that they, they're compelled by nature to be more in tune with their body. In the best case scenario. Right. Unfortunately, right. executive women, because I work with a lot of them, um, part of the cost of being able to quote-unquote compete in the workplace and be considered as good as the men they work with in the American workplace mm requires that they actually ignore 
you know, their bodies and, and be much more in their heads, much more intellectual. Right, right. Um, and it's why endometriosis is considered the executive woman's disease now. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Speculate on why that is. Well, I'm, I'm working with a client who actually, you know, uh, has a very uh, high position in, you know, upper management in a hotel, big, big hotel chain. Mm-hmm. And what the job requires you know, is working long hours and she has three children. So she, you know, and, and a husband, but she comes home to that. And so her day never stops. Mm-hmm. And so she has had to literally disconnect from the neck down. In why, order- does it, why does it manifest as endometriosis? Because the uterus, which is where what happens with endometriosis is the endometrium is the lining of the uterus mm-hmm. and that starts to break apart. The uterus is for a woman, a the womb, it's where we carry a baby, right? So, And it's also a creative space in the chakra system. It's the creative energy there. So if that is being denied, you know, the feminine self is being denied in service to whatever the job performance is requiring, then it's going to start to create blockage, energetic blockages, in this part of the body mm-hmm. and you start to then that, that part starts to break down. So we're starting to see this as a recurring condition in professional women, executive women. Mm-hmm. That's a, mm-hmm. that's a pretty powerful, uh, pretty powerful statement about imbalance mm-hmm. and disconnection from the body. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, Italian culture is matriarchal, so it brings it has a more feminine vibe to it, uh, and that ha- that has a role to play in each of the each of the seven elements of abundanza. Yes. Okay. Yes. So we talked about um, touch. Mm-hmm. The second one was seeing the best, which mm-hmm. is sort of more cooperative, less competitive. So we could mm-hmm. offer that as more mm-hmm. feminine. What's next? Mm-hmm. Uh, treating people as family. So that, you know, California, for example, is a place where a lot of people move from other places and leave their families behind. So they have to create new family. So how do you create family, you know, um, that is not your family of origin? And this is one of the values that because when you treat people as family, you will feel um, uh, a deeper sense of, of the oxytocin piece, you know, the, the connection, a place to belong. One of the things that research showed, and I thought this was really interesting, that people have a deeper need to belong than they do to survive, which is why... That's a powerful statement. Yeah. A deeper need to belong than to survive. Yeah. So they will, for example, guys in a foxhole, you know, will sacrifice their life because they've be, they've bonded with their troop, mm, you know, right, right. with uh, and so whatever it is that for you represents loyalty. Loyalty starts to supersede because of the need to belong to a tribe. We are tribal by nature, right, you know. Right. So when you can create people around you who become like family to you. You know, and in my own life, you know, I moved from, uh, I've moved twice. I've moved, I grew up in the Southwest, moved to Los Angeles after college, created, you know, had to create a new family there, then moved to three years ago to Marin County, had to create, and for me, it was about creating family, mm-hmm. not just friends. Okay. You know? So, and so what's the difference between, and I imagine it has a lot to do with, or um, the oxytocin response is consequential. What's the difference between family and friends? I think that family will, you know, 
do a lot more for you and you will do a lot more for, you know, in, um, there's a woman whose, whose work I really respect called Alison Armstrong and she does something called Understanding Men, Understanding Women. And she talks about the, the court, the royal court, you know, of the king and the queen. And who do you choose to have in your court? Mm-hmm. And being very clear about who you have in your court. So part of that for me is choosing people. I'm very clear about who I choose that there's mutual loyalty. You know, that I will do, I'll be there. They can call me at three o'clock in the morning if they need, if they had an emergency and vice versa. You know, these are the people who can stop by my, know that I'm going to be cooking and they can stop by and get a meal, you know, Mm -hmm. from me because that's my thing. It happens to be my thing. So, um, it's like that. So is it a level of vulnerability or intimacy that you are willing to share that makes the, that sort of makes a difference? Yeah, I think that vulnerability is is there. I think I'm I'm a pretty vulnerable person in general, but I think it's it's knowing who those people are that have your back. Uh-huh. Like who are the people come thick or thin that no matter what happens, you have money, you don't have money, you have a relationship, you don't have a relationship that are going to be with you through thick and thin like your family in the best case scenario is. And can you reflect that um how does that stimulate it in the matriarchal culture as opposed to well, in matriarchal cultures, because the mother is really the power, you know, from which everything comes, that family really becomes a, an important value. I'm interviewing Italian CEOs for my new book. And so far, all the, the CEOs I've interviewed have been men. Mm-hmm. And they're all powerful. They're not effeminate, very masculine men who created huge companies. But yet, those feminine values that came from their Italian background are clear in the way they run their companies. Very family oriented, you know, mm-hmm. and in every single case, mm-hmm. they run, the, they run their companies like a family. And guess what? They got huge loyalty from their people. Right. Right. Very good. Cool. Okay. What's next? Food. no discussion of italian culture it would be complete without (laughs) so i talk about this in terms of you know because some of us you know live alone or or cook alone or whatever there are times when you're not with other people so it's both with other people and with yourself what how do you prepare in a sacred way you know what i see in the italian culture and i saw in my italian family was there was a a joyous energy. So whatever sacred is for you, you know, uh, in my family, it was joy, you know, that there was joy that my grandmother and, and my mother and my family brought to the cooking. You know, there's a wonderful film in the Mexican, comes from the Mexican culture, like Water for Chocolate. Mm-hmm. And you saw that the scenes where, you know, the cook was, you know, in, in a state of happiness and, and what she cooked, everybody was happy at the table. And then there were times where she was really sad and she's crying into the, into the soup and then everybody's crying at the dinner table, you know. Right. So there's a consciousness. Mm-hmm. There's an energy we bring to, to food when we're cooking food. So very important that you connect to the food, not just how the food connects to you. You know, and that gets, you know, uh, the blessing of that is how your body takes it in. So one of the things that with a lot of these Italian CEOs that they over and over again have, have talked about is they pull all their people together and they eat together and they have environments where they have, uh, you know, like work cafes. You know, one, today was the, the man I interviewed is, is called Maria's, you know, work cafe after his mother, you know. Oh, so, I see. Nice. And so the people, his people can come there and just hang out 
and connect with each other, you know, and they have socials and different things for the families of their, of their employees as well. So there's all this food thing that really connects people. So, and then when you're sitting at the table and you're actually eating, it's how do you connect with each other? My memories of, of an Italian family was, it was animated, you know, a lot of, uh, laughter, sometimes, uh, you know, high voices. Uh, one of the, the gentlemen I interviewed said that his wife, who was not Italian, when she met the family and she heard all this yelling, no one had ever yelled at her table. She thought they were mad at each other. <laughs> and, and Italians, you know, just can be very animated in their speaking. Uh, you know? I, that is, that is a, uh, I think that's a common thread. Uh-huh. Um, whenever we introduced anyone new, <laughs> a, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a spouse, uh, you know, to the Carousella dinner table, it was always a, it always came with lots of coaching and warning. <laughs> I was like, don't, it's, it'll be okay. Just relax and it'll be fun if you allow it to be fun. And cause it was loud. It was very animated. It was, um, very expressive. Mm-hmm. And so what is it about being expressive around food that makes it, that, why does it work so well there? Because it connects you. You know, I think uh, people breaking bread together, there's something about, that's very primal with that, that when you, even having a meeting, if you have a meeting over food, there's something that connects people more than if they're just having a straight on meeting with each other, you know. So there's something about the food and especially certain food, you know, that uh, Italian food, for example, increases serotonin. You know, uh, pasta has, uh, you know, ingredients in it that literally, you know, kind of calm you. So if someone is really agitated or upset, I will always say, you know, have a little pasta. You know, the, the difference between the American culture's version of having a little pasta <laughs> and then what you see in Italy, it's a side dish in Italy. You right, know, right. it's it's not this whole huge, you know, it's heaping not a, it's not a vat Texas style. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. You know, but it actually does calm the body, you know, if you're under stress. Well, and, and it's interesting. It feels like there's a connection back to um, sensuality as well. Yeah. Right. And that that you are having an experience with your body in a very elementary, uh, non-intellectual, not particularly cognitive way when you're eating food. Mm -hmm. And you're sharing that experience, which is operating below the cognitive threshold. And if you are mindful of even if you're not mindful of it, frankly, mm-hmm. right? It's a shared nonverbal experience. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Right? Yeah. And so it's nonverbal, it's non-cognitive. It puts you in a different energetic place. Mm-hmm. Now, the fact that Italians talk like maniacs over dinner, right? Uh, I think is, is an enriching uh, aspect but it doesn't take away from the fundamental harmonic, which is that this is a shared nonverbal experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the food is so good, mm-hmm. right? And it's prepared with love. So, I mean, the ingredients in Italy are particularly phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ingredients here in California are phenomenal as well. But I noticed the difference between Italian food and California food is that 
in California, we had a lot more variety of food, a lot more different mm -hmm. kinds of food. Mm -hmm. But in Italy, it was all prepared with love. Yeah. And and that actually made a significant difference in in the nonverbal experience of the food. Mm -hmm. What can we say about that? About love being in the food. I think what you can, uh, in terms of translating it, because that's my passion, is how do we translate these principles and practices into the American lifestyle? So I think what it is is that rather you're just eating a very simple meal of uh, not that's non-grain, you know, that's protein and a bunch of vegetables or whatever. It's how do you take the food in? How do you prepare it? You know, how do you connect with the people if you're eating with others around this food? So the food itself, yes, there's nothing, there's no question that, that there's something about Italian food that makes you really happy, mm. you know, because it does release, you know, serotonin. But I think in general, even if it's just real healthy, non-grain meal, you can produce that by virtue of the love that, you know, that you communicate. Why does that work? Why does why does preparing food with love translate into the food? It's an energy, and if you look at you know quantum physics, that that really you know we're always at one. If if we were to understand the true nature of things, we are at one, and with uh, with everything you know, whether it's with food, whether it's with others, and how do you choose to be at one? you know, mm. with the, with the, with the food you're preparing or the food you're eating. Mm. So when you sit down and you take the time, you know, another study showed that, you know, after the second bite, most people don't even, aren't even aware of what they're eating. They go unconscious, really? you know, after the second bite. Yeah. So how can you practice actually receiving the nurturing of the food you're eating, you know? And one of the things that, uh, that I think also comes from the Italian culture is because Italian mothers are, uh, from the time, you know, children are just raised with that nurturing kind of energy around food. So they, you don't, you probably don't have a lot of anorexia and eating disorders in those cultures because there isn't a fear of food. There isn't a fear of it getting you uh, fat. It's, it's really safe to take things in just like it was safe to take in mother's milk. Mm. You know, interesting. So. Interesting. So that speaks to a kind of intimacy and vulnerability, yes. right? Willing to be vulnerable to the food, yes. right? Yeah. Uh, which people are afraid of food. Yeah, there are a lot of people in this country afraid of food. <laughs> well, I think you know it's not surprising because a lot of food in this country is not safe. And there's that, right? It's, there's that it's, piece. It's Absolutely. Not, uh, and it's not the, the ingredients are sourced in a very um, mm -hmm. non-organic way, mm -hmm. uh, highly processed and not prepared particularly necessarily mm -hmm. with love. So right. it really becomes a, a totally different animal, mm -hmm. you know, when, when you, if, if, it, if in fact it's true, which, which we know it is that, um, it's all vibration, right? It's right. all, you know, the, the quantum envelope matters, right? You can't dismiss it. When you look at the whole life cycle or food chain of something that you take into your body, yes, you really—it's you know—that's one of the reasons why organics are are so much more 
they're so much tastier. Uh-huh. They taste better. Uh-huh. Um, and you can argue, with, well, it's because they, uh, because there's a natural process that they're designed to, to mm-hmm. grow in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And so they, and we've evolved to appreciate that mm-hmm. um, nutritionally and, and otherwise. But I, I also think it, it, there is a, it's impossible to separate the mindfulness mm-hmm. uh, and the care and the love of someone who is, has made the choice, in, in particular in, in this day and age, has made the choice to grow organic food because they think it's meaningful. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes a big difference in, in how we experience it. Mm-hmm. And so how is that feminine? <laughs> How does that relate to the matriarchy? You mean in terms of how we take in food? Yeah. Because the feminine is about receptivity. It's how we receive. Rather you're male or female, it's not about rather you're man or woman, but right. what right. the what the what the feminine principle is is there's there are times to take action and initiate and there are times to simply be receptive and receive. So when the, the meal has been cooked and it's time to now receive the meal, how do you, how are you mindful yeah. with your eating? Yeah, I like that. Okay. Uh, so receptivity around food as a practice one can develop mm-hmm. and that is handily available through Italian culture. If you take the time you know, to actually be awake to what you're eating, you're not going to eat, overeat. Mm-hmm. You'll be aware of when you feel full. Yeah, yeah, that's it. You know? Yeah. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Dr. Tony Gallardi in just a moment. You're listening to Convergence with host John Carousella on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at fireflywillows.com. Enjoy the show. Um, we've got a couple of more pieces of abundanza, right? Okay. Two more elements of abundanza. So, you know, the Italians are very big on, on spirituality. For them, it's often like in religious forms. So they worship, you know, uh, the Pope and Frank Sinatra. <laughs> There's a picture of the Pope and Frank Sinatra on the, on the wall. <laughs> that's, a, that's actually very American. <laughs> an American-Italian family. <laughs> so uh, I joke, but, you know, there is, you know, there is a traditional, obviously, you know, approach. And I was raised a Catholic, went through nine years of Catholic school. But what I took from that, which is a practice, is, for me is meditation, you know, is mm-hmm. taking time to, for me, walking in nature is a part of being able to be connected. And so whatever that spiritual, my grandmother left the church when they refused to, to bury my grandfather, and this is 1943, uh, because they didn't have enough money. And she said, this is not a place of God. And she left the church. And yet this was a person who was the most spiritual person I've ever known in my life, mm. you know, mm-hmm. because of that, that she oozed that, that heartfelt nature. And so I think it's, it's whatever it is for you, if it's walking in nature, if it's reading spiritual materials, if it's meditation, you know, taking time to be in contemplation and, and quiet 
instilling the mind mm. that this is a very important piece that um that you see that's very feminine that's a feminine value you see that as a feminine value because um it has to do and again this isn't about male or female we're not talking about men or women mm-hmm. it's a it's a part of the yin which is the inside part of us that is about getting still enough to be at one with whatever you call God. Right. It's the stillness. Yeah. Right. Okay. So what's the last piece of Abandonio? The Italian word for it is pisolino. Okay. So if you were to say, uh, ho bisogno apprendere un pisolino. In English, what that translates as, I need to take a nap. <laughs> Great. All right, let's talk about this. So naps are very big. You naps know. are big. Yeah. Why? Why is? How does a nap relate to abundance? Oh my God. Well, we are a, a sleep-deprived nation. You know, people do not get enough sleep in this country, and. Um, uh, if you take a nap, and I, um, there's a wonderful book called The Corporate Mystic, in which uh, Gay Hendricks uh, interviewed CEOs all over the country on intuition, you know, and one of the things that a lot of them had in common was they took time out in the, in the afternoon where they did not book. Uh, they literally took out time for either taking a nap, daydreaming. One guy just would sit in his uh, desk and look out the window, and he would just daydream, and they felt that was part of what allowed them to come into creative problem solving was shutting the mind down and completely shutting it down. You know, Armin Hammer took a nap in the afternoon, you know, and wouldn't take calls, had a cot, you know, in his office. And quite recently, Ariana Huffington, who has the Huffington Post, did an amazing speech at Smith last year around having collapsed at her desk from exhaustion, hit her head on the desk, from sheer exhaustion. And so she instituted into the Huffington Post a nap room so that her people, whenever they're tired, rather than pushing through, that they go and they take a nap. And this is something else uh, in interviewing Italian CEOs, that they are very big on rest. They're people not working 16-hour days. Every single person I've interviewed so far was about making sure their people got enough rest and that they had balance and they spent time with their families. It seems like, again, this very biological connector. Absolutely. Right? I mean, sleep, we don't even understand it, and yet it consumes a third of our lives. Yeah. Right? And we try to manipulate ourselves away from the biological imperative to sleep all the time in this country. And the sleep research, and there's recently, I just read something in actually the San Francisco Chronicle, where they taught, where they did a huge amount of research on what, how much in terms of naps. Do, are naps viable? Do they really improve cognitive ability? And they found that indeed they do. And it's about 20 to 30 minutes, mm-hmm. you know, is all you need. Right. So when I was doing consulting in corporate America, I would go out to my car, you know, cause there was no such thing as a nap room. Right. So I would take my lunch and go out to my car and I would just, you know, um, uh, set my watch. And then I would um, just just take a nap for 20 minutes. You know, I I really believe in Pisolino. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And you know, I I can remember so many times um, 
trying to fight through that wall where I really, it was like two, two o'clock in the afternoon. I had a corporate job and I am falling asleep and I, and I would fight it for 45 minutes to an hour mm-hmm. and be completely nonproductive when a 15 minute nap yeah. would solve the problem. Yeah. But because we have a, a, a stigma about sleeping on the job. Right. Uh, and we don't have a culture that can understand and accommodate the value, the real yeah. economic value of exactly. being well rested. Mm-hmm. We shoot ourselves in the foot all the time. It's, it's amazing. Okay. Anything else about Abundanza? I just think it's a wonderful way to live. It is a wonderful you know, way to live. And I think it does help you to manage change more easily. What What strikes me about um, the the things that you've talked about and the way you've chosen this set is they have a very they have a very sanguinary aspect to them. It's, it's it really is about being embodied, mm-hmm. about about acknowledging how significant your body is mm-hmm. to how you show up in the world, mm-hmm. and giving yourself, giving your biology uh, a shot at being heard, mm-hmm. and and leveraging it, right? Allowing your mm-hmm. biology to be, to use your biology as an asset and then as an ally mm-hmm. uh, really makes a huge difference. And what I find interesting about it is what I'm trying to correlate in real time, and maybe you can help me mm-hmm. out with this, is how did the patriarchal structure and why did the patriarchal structure contribute to distancing ourselves from our fundamental biology. Well, that's a whole huge conversation. And, you know, the Chalice and the Blade, which was a book on this, you know, on how we shifted from a matriarchal world to a patriarchal world, that this was part of developing the mind, that, you know, we needed to develop this part, but now it's time to reclaim it, that we, you know, I think it got out of balance. Right, right. It's about bringing... The masculine and feminine into you know into that perfect balance of the king and the queen together. So we know? definitely have exercised the mind over the last two thousand years in a very profound way, mm-hmm. uh, and expanded it right, mm-hmm. expanded its capacities and its role. Mm-hmm. Um, one can reasonably say at the expense of our biology, and not just our biology, the biology of the planet. Yeah, exactly, you know, and that's the bigger piece here is our planet is in peril you know in the first book i wrote the life quake phenomenon part of that was you know the seventh stage of that model was about once you can master your own personal change then it's about becoming a change agent in the world right okay. how do you commit to that in the right. world so well, let's take it i want to talk about life quake. Okay. Uh, so let's take a short break and okay. we'll be right back A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi-C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, contact Hi-C at tarotbyhi-c.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. And with me for today's Spirited Conversation is Dr. Tony Gallardi, 
also known as the LifeQuake Doctor. Now, before the break, we talked about uh, about the this, the new work, the Abundanza method that you're working on. But you came sort of into this space through the LifeQuake, and uh, I gather you have had some some experiences with LifeQuakes yourself. Yeah, <laughs> a few. How did, how did you how did you get to that? What stimulated your arrival at the, the life quickness. I was terrified of change. And when I say change, I mean major changes, you know, changes that could threaten economic security, you mm-hmm. know. And so at three different junctures in my life, when it was time to make a change, um, I ignored the signs and uh, brought in, you know, near fatal experiences into my life. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so after the third one, <laughs> I started to take a look at my own life and start looking at this whole, how, is there a way, I was in the question, is there a way that to prepare people for change so that they could not only have a way of managing crisis when they're in the midst of it, but before that hits, is, was there some way that there, of seeing things before they actually had to hit the fan? You and, know? And- when you reflect back on your change experiences, mm-hmm. uh, those that were ultimately that mm-hmm. smacked you, mm-hmm. um, were there signs? The first time I was uh, I was young, I was um, just out of college. It was my first job out of college, and I was really naive. I grew up in a very middle-class environment and had never been exposed to Skid Row, and my first job was working on Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles on Main Street. And um, I started to feel intuitively that something was changing on Skid Row and things were getting more violent. And I went to my boss and reported this, that I was, we need to get a security guard. And he said, no, it'll, it'll be fine. I'm, I'm, you know, I'll always have my doors open. You know, if there's any problem, I can handle it. He just arrived from Philly and, you know, he thought he was a tough guy. Right. So. <laughs> he probably was uh, a tough guy. And, uh, at the, on this particular day, I just, my ex-husband, who was my fiance at the time, said, why don't you quit the job? But I didn't want to be dependent on him and, uh, was afraid of, of, of letting go of the job. And one morning, uh, a junkie, on lit on PCP got through screening and um, I did not know that this was the case that he was you know stoned and I tried to because he was creating commotion you know and I tried to escort him out into the waiting room and out the door and he flipped out and grabbed me by the by the neck and started to choke me threw me up against a wall and started choking me and Literally, the life, my life force was, was leaving my body, and I just started to pray. And this woman whom I had befriended was one of our employees who could hardly speak English. She was from Russia. She was a physician in Russia, and she was the only person. Everybody else went into complete panic, did nothing, and she was the one who took action and came over and started yanking on his arm, and he was a very tall guy, um, and it broke his glaze, and he threw her one way, and he threw me another and ran out of the facility. So I had handprints on my neck oh my uh, from from uh, when they rushed me to the hospital. The bruises were actually in hand, in the form of handprints, and I suffered a you know a neck injury as a result of it. Mm-hmm. So that that got me out of the job, and I started having night terrors, 
And those night terrors led to my going into therapy to deal with it. And it was out of going into therapy that I started asking my therapist questions about what her work. I was fascinated by what she did and decided to go back to graduate school mm-hmm. and uh, to go to graduate school and, and actually pursue this as a, you know. So it was out of that experience that actually led to my becoming a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you had, but you've had more than one of these. Yes. What else? What else? So the second time I was, um, I needed to leave my marriage. I'd already, I was established in private practice. I had a beautiful home in South Orange County, you know, in a place called San Juan Capistrano. Some people know of it from the Swallows. Gorgeous, beautiful property that we had. And, um, and I was starting to change and, and, and transform into another person who was, I left behind Catholicism and I started looking at metaphysics and Eastern thought. And I knew that what I was doing, the kind of work how I was trained, which was as a Freudian, you know, or neo-Freudian, and it didn't work as far as I was concerned. It was too slow. It took too long to help people. Mm-hmm. So I sold my practice. I left my marriage. But before any of that happened, I was in three car accidents in six days. So um, I wasn't getting the message, you know, <laughs> That it was time. I was terrified. I felt loyal to my husband. He had put me through graduate school. How could I? And my grandmother, my Italian grandmother, when I was in New York, would say to me, "You can't leave him. He doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't chase women. You know what's wrong with you? You know." But I had outgrown the marriage. I met him when I was 21, and he was still a Catholic, Italian Catholic boy, and I was taking this other path. Mm-hmm. And really wanting to learn about healing from a whole nother point of view and ended up, you know, studying shamanism in Peru. So I left behind a whole life, but the soul that was asking for me to, to take up that life and my ego were in complete battle, you know. What was that battle so like? What? That, that this, that I had been raised in this traditional paradigm and how could I leave the security of what I had? For what? For what? The unknown, for whatever. And, and it was just not, you know, in the wiring of what the messages I received. My, my parents both had jobs with pensions and all of that, you right, know, and that's right. how you, what you're supposed to do, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was totally having to literally come right up against everything I had been raised with. And I kept shutting myself down and I started losing a lot of weight and that didn't do it. And so one day coming out of South Coast Plaza, which is a very upscale uh, shopping center, I was hit from behind by um, a woman who traffic stopped and she plowed right into the back of my car. Then I had a rental car. And two days later, the brakes in the rental car went out while I went, again, traffic was stopping. I stopped, but the, the brakes went completely berserk and I went spinning like a top across eight lanes of freeway. Oh my and God, wow. Um, had to literally, once again, I called on my angels and said, you know, help me. And it was a miracle because when my car came to, I was facing traffic. This is four o'clock, four thirty on a Friday in Southern Orange County where the five and the four o five meet. And my car was in the, like the fourth lane over and facing traffic. And it could have been like a 16 car pileup. It was amazing. But the, the cars parted like a red, red sea for me, and they just let me get to the side of the road. And I was so shook up by this whole thing that I decided I, that the answer to this problem 
was to stop driving. <laughs> if I just stopped driving, the problem would go away. Right. This is what we, when we are so terrified that of the massive change that's coming, you know, what our mind will do. So my family comes out to visit. It's two weeks, it was two weeks before my birthday. And, uh, I put my brother in charge of driving another rental car. I'm in the back seat. I put myself in the middle of the back seat. My godmother, in Italian culture, the gumara, okay, is like your, your, your guardian angel. She's on one side of me because she came out from New York. My mother is on the other side of me. So I'm going to be safe now. You know, <laughs> I'm in the right. safest part of the car. Right. And we were hit by a drunk driver. <laughs> oh my gosh. And that's when my world started to unravel. Because I'm in, you know, a brace around my neck, sitting on the side of the road from the previous accident and thinking, what is going on in my world? And so I called a, a colleague of mine. I was in practice with five other therapists and I said, you know, what, what's happening to me? What's happening? And he said, jokingly, you know, because he wasn't spiritual, he said, God, is pissed off. <laughs> and I and I actually started to think about that and I thought not a god out there but some part of me was crying out and I wasn't listening. So the god in me, the soul that was calling for for me to wake up to a new life, you know, was creating whatever it had to do to get my attention. Okay, so it got your attention. And so briefly, take us through the the because I want to I want to talk more in depth about what happens after you realize a life quake is happening to you and yeah sort of in it like I want to start in the middle but to take sure. a, just give us a layout of the of the phases so the first stage of a life quake is boredom and if you look at the emotional tone scale um, ecstasy is at the top despair is at the bottom and right in the middle is a transition emotion called boredom. And I'm not talking about chronic boredom that some people have no matter what. I'm talking about where something you've been doing, it could be the exercise routine you do, or your marriage, or um, even your spiritual discipline, no longer has the viability that it did have, that it once did have for you, you know, your job, you know, the career you were in. And you start to get restless. And it's what I call the spiritual itch. It's, it's, an, it's an itch you cannot scratch. You cannot figure out what is it that's missing. And what people do if they choose the unconscious approach to this is they usually start creating addiction, you know, self-medicating as a way of numbing out. And that's what I was doing. I was having a couple of glasses of wine every night. Right, right. And it's not uncommon for us to self-medicate, for us to ignore this itch. Right. Because we're not trained to recognize what it really means, perhaps. Right. When somebody comes to me at that stage, you know, I have a client I'm working with who works for Wells Fargo, and she's at that place, you know, and I'm seeing a lot of people now who are in the, the last act, the third act of their life, you know, and looking at how can they create in this, this point in their life at 55, 60, um, a whole new career and feeling unchallenged by what they're doing. So you can do things. One of the, the, the exercises I give someone in this stage is to start paying attention to everything in your life where your energy goes up. Because when you're bored, you think everything is no longer just, you know, it's just like nothing's turning you on, you know. 
But if you start just paying attention to what, what, what am I curious about? Where is my interest growing? Where am I, where's passion? You know, there's lots of levels to this, you know. So if you keep a log of that over three weeks, you'll start to see a pattern. And that's why when I coach people, I can help them connect the dots. Nice, nice. Okay, so what happens next? So the next stage, if you do not, if you do this unconsciously, is depression. If you do nothing and you just keep numbing out uh, to what changes need to be made, you will start becoming more depressed. And that's when people's addictions start getting stronger. The conscious approach to stage two is to begin to notice what in my life needs to die. I would say the biggest taboo left in America is the fear of death. Absolutely. You know, so inside of life, there are things that need to die all the time. We are not meant to be in harvest all the time. There's a winter cycle to life. Mm-hmm. You know, relationships need to go through winter cycles. And it's how can you, you know, weather those winter cycles. So it's about paying attention to what in my life. And, you know, the, that expression in, in Native Americans is it's a good day to die. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what in my life is it time to shed? You know, how much of the stuff I have do I need to get rid of, you know, on a real physical level? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. what are the beliefs? That are, that are no longer working for me? What do I believe about change? You know, about my uh, values? Is there, my values are changing. What needs to die? And what needs to be shed? And we often don't give ourselves the freedom to experience that. Absolutely. We're, because we're, we're terrified of it. Yeah, we're, and we're programmed that these things are, are immutable, sacred truths, right? I often will ask people who come for healing work, what beliefs are you willing to give up in order to be healed? Because so often there are beliefs, conscious and unconscious, overt, covert, explicit, implicit beliefs that hold us in certain places where we are no longer energetically served and we are, in fact, energetically being damaged by staying there. And, you know... That's a, it makes for a toxic process. So you have to, um, it's about creating a belief system that includes death, that includes winter cycles, and that you can weather that and include that, you know, in your entire life experience. Now, you know? We, we get caught in this place where um, the culture says certain things are sacrosanct. Certain changes are not allowed, mm-hmm. um, and and we risk the fear of not belonging. Mm. As as the culture has gotten, as society has gotten more liberal over the years, there are fewer and fewer of those. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't feel them, even though other people get divorced or or uh, other people come out as gay or whatever. It doesn't mean that it's easy for someone to do so. Yeah. So is the culture overall getting more responsive to the need to accommodate death? It's a good question. I don't think so. You don't think so? I think people are still terrified of, you know, the whole, you know, boomer generation that are really having to look at mortality, um, I think, have a lot of fear about death. And I think, but within life itself, because there's so much fear of change, 
people see or change. And to me, that's what, you know, that's yeah, what it is. Absolutely. That's what death is inside of life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the fear of change. So, we wouldn't have as much addiction has gone through the roof, you know, mm-hmm. and people are numbing out to what their soul is calling them to do. So I don't know. And I think with having gone through a big economic, you know, up- upheaval for a few years, people are particularly terrified of making changes that could be economically, um, Risky. You know, I, I, I find that people are hanging on to old models, old economic models. Yeah. Um, that I'm skeptical will ever return. Right. And people, I, I, I've experienced people looking for work, quote unquote, looking for work. And they'll say things like, well, I'm looking for the job, you know, the kind of stuff that I did before, but I don't really want that kind of job anymore. Uh-huh. Right. And I'm like, well, there's a good chance you're not going to find that kind of job anymore because that kind of job is gone. Mm-hmm. And the requirement to, to come into communion with, into, into resonance with what actually is happening now, mm-hmm. it's almost like a bunch of death has occurred. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're just waking up to the fact that it has occurred. And some of us are waking up more readily and some of us are less inclined to wake up to the fact that a whole bunch of death has occurred. And, you know, there's, I think there's also rebirth that's already happening out of the ashes of what has died. So, and I, and that's kind of where I want to bring the conversation Mm -hmm. next. So Mm -hmm. after accommodating death, Mm -hmm. right? Accommodating death within life. Mm -hmm. What's next? Radical severance. You know, the actual having to either through a crisis and being forced to make a change. Um, sometimes life quakes happen as a result of getting laid off or having a, a spouse leave you or leaving a spouse or uh, an illness, you know. Um, but there's some kind of severance to the old life. And some people do it consciously and they just, you know, step into uh, what is calling them. And some people have to actually be dragged through it. Right. You know. Okay. But once you're, once you're, once the cords are cut, mm-hmm. that, you know, one, one could say, well, a variety of things about that. One is that there's a great deal of freedom that accrues mm-hmm. to that, that's mm-hmm. attached to that. Um, there's also a sense of maybe disequilibrium. Absolutely. Like, so what do we, so what is that? What do you call that phase? The cosmic barbecue. <laughs> okay. So, uh, the cosmic barbecue is that time in limbo after you've shed the old life. And it's, it's the most, can be the most terrifying time because there's no more structure to the life from the, the life you had and the programs that you had. And it, but it's an opportunity to actually discover who am I now? Who am mm, I now? Right. Do people get stuck in limbo? They can. Yeah. People stay, you know, unemployed, you know, and move in with their mother (laughs) or whatever. You know, they can stay stuck in that limbo phase if you don't dream the new dream. And part of dreaming the new dream is getting quiet enough to hear what's calling you, you know. Ah, that's so Dreams. I work with, when I work with my clients, it's about looking at what the clues are from your dreams. What are divine coincidences, which are synchronicities, mm. that if you're paying attention, 
and this is what Carl Jung talked about, you know, is that synchronicity is being so in tune with your environment that, that things can come to you. They actually can come to you, yeah, you know, that yeah. are the clues to go this direction, you right, know? Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so in limbo, there's a, a I guess the, one of the questions that I want to, want to ask because I'm kind of in limbo myself. Mm-hmm. Um, is how do you know when you're hearing the true song? Ah, uh, well, that's a you know that's a trial and error process, which is what stage five is about. You know. All right then. Uh-huh. I guess uh, so. Let's, you know. So take me out of limbo then. Let's go. So discovering the new blueprint is about trying new things. Like you have your show. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was in stage four, that was when I did my talk show. You know, I wanted to do something completely different than therapy, psychotherapy. And uh, so I tried something new. And it, you see what actually grabs, you know, and you, you try that out. Or you see what else pulls you. Mm-hmm. And you try that out. And you start to see what actually has legs to it, you know. What do you find yourself wanting to, to actually put a lot of energy into, you know. Yeah, this is a, a phrase that I've begun to apply to myself specifically to that is inner sustainability that which i can do enough of mm-hmm. and doing things only to the point where i don't feel exhausted by doing them yes and that sort of leads me to doing the things that sustain me the most the most mm-hmm. right i'll do those more often because they are Good. more inclined to feed me right and so that way i never get to the this this analytical place where I'm saying I should be doing X, Y, Z because if it's not feeding me, then I shouldn't be doing X, Y, Z. It's not, it's not healthy. It's not, it's not increasing my vitality, Mm -hmm. but there's something fundamental about taking that approach that you have to axiomatically buy into. Mm -hmm. And that is that, that it's an abundant place. Mm-hmm. That we live in an abundant universe mm-hmm. and, a, and a benevolent universe that will reward us for, in a sense, taking care of ourselves from the inside out. And being authentic. And that it rewards that, authenticity. That courage right. is rewarded. And that's the biggest leap of faith that one has to take, is that if I follow what I'm being called to, that it will reward. I will be rewarded. Now, there's lots of levels of what that means. You know, there's something about one's own ability to trust yourself that comes from taking a leap of faith, yeah. you know, yeah. and following the, the less trodden path, you know. And have you found in your own process that that's been true? Yeah. I think that my self-respect went way up when I chose a life that was not about making a lot of money, not that that isn't a possibility and that, that there, it's not either or, right. but that wasn't my priority. I wasn't driven any longer to amass a lot of money. It was really about what is it that sustains my spirit. Mm. And I created a life and a lifestyle that supports my spirit. Excellent. That's, I think everybody wants to hear that. Everybody wants to hear that that's, that that's a reasonable course of action mm-hmm. because we're all going through life quakes. This Absolutely. is this is a, this is a uh, 
The world is quaking. The world is quaking. Yeah. And uh, we, we really have a choice whether we want to hold on to the timbers of our, of our previous existence or step or, or get the heck out of the building. Mm-hmm. Even and the quantum physicists are in agreement that we are moving into the fifth dimension. You know, we are moving into other dimensions that we are moving out of um, linear time and the, the dimensions in, of things that you can touch. And actually, we, we're being able to alter time, step into parallel universes and actually alter time. So this is a, unlikely to be an easy process analytically. Yes, you have to experience it. And so, so for, for those of you who are listening, we're all going through quakes, right? Mm-hmm. We're going through life quakes. We aren't necessarily going to, you know, the way through is not this, is not by looking to traditional maps or traditional techniques. There is a fundamental requirement to have a different kind of perspective on what's important and in the dynamic that exists between you and the universe when, mm-hmm. when you make that shift. Mm-hmm. Okay, so exploring the blueprint, finding the new blueprint, exploring for that. How do you know when you found it? What happens next? This, well, you're, fe- you're being fed. Stage six is, um, is about the wealthy spirit, and it's about creating wealth from a whole new paradigm. That it's, that it's about doing that which you really love, not what you were programmed to, to do in life. Right. You right. know? Right. Um, and, and being able to, I think, create out of that space. So what everything you create in your life is by design, not by accident. That you're literally putting into place a foundation. Every part of your life is deliberate. And you have to have faith that and trust that that that's going to reward you. Mm-hmm. Right? Cause, well, otherwise, otherwise the you... reward is in the experience. You know, it's not in the goal. It's not... It's not being goal-oriented like in the old paradigm. It's that the process of everything you're doing is its own reward. The prosperity, the abundanza, comes in living a juicy life. Right. You know? Right. So if you're putting, that you're making sure that the environment that you live in, you know, for example, has nature around and that feeds your spirit, you know, do that. You know, if it means being in a relationship, making sure that your the partner you choose is somebody who has the same values as you, you know, um, is committed to the same kind of path that that you are committed to, that makes for a juicy life, you know. Right. And right. then of course the work you do. Right. And and I guess what I'm what I'm reflecting on is we have a a story, a cultural story of yeah. scarcity. Yeah. And yeah. the idea that we could, quote unquote, indulge ourselves mm-hmm. by scripting our lives so that we are satisfied in the moment mm-hmm. is, is foolish. It's, it leads to transitory happiness and ultimate catastrophe. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that that's true anymore. Mm-hmm. I think, in fact, working the other way trying to accumulate to be protected, especially in the way that we've tried to accumulate, unsustainably accumulate so that we can be protected, Mm -hmm. actually is harder now than 
living an authentic life in the moment. Would you agree? There is, a, you know, it's a, it's a it's a process. It's a paradigm shift. So it takes time for to to shift that paradigm. And I think it actually is true that the more of us that choose to shift it, the sooner it'll arrive. Absolutely, hundredth monkey theory, which is you make a choice and uh, the morphic resonance of somebody on the other side of the world is going to get that as well. So come on board, folks. Let's make it happen because it's going to be a new earth, as Eckhart Tolle would say. Absolutely. Okay. So spiritual wealth, spiritual abundance, and and is that that's not the end of the road. The seventh stage, it's funny, when I hired an editor when I was writing Lifequake, he said, can't we just lop this stage off? And I said, what? Are you out of your mind? And so the seventh stage is that out of being, becoming masterful in being able to make changes and have your life work because you're in more in flow, and so prosperity comes from that flow, it's about taking, you know, there's an expression, noblesse oblige, from the French, which means to more that is given, more is expected. Mm-hmm. So from your, the grace that you have, to go out and become an agent of change in the world, to commit yourself with daily, it doesn't have to be, some people, yes, they're going to volunteer for nonprofit organizations, and that's how they're going to do it, or give to charities, and that's how they're going to do it. But it's also on the just the one-on-one, a grassroots effort, how you treat the teller at the bank and the you know the dry cleaner you know clerk you know and the bagger at the you know the grocery store. It's mm-hmm. spreading love, you know, creates change in the world. So if you come from a commitment, I'm going out into my day with the commitment being I'm here to make changes by by bringing love to this world. You know, you will end the day having done something. Isn't that so beautifully simple? I, I worked with a client actually just today who's a financial consultant for a big company. I mean, the clients are like the World Bank and places like that, you know. And he was talking about how he realized he, that he, his perfectionism was getting in the way of his family life and that it even got in the way at work, too, because his expectations were so high. And because I'm also an astrologer, which is one of the things that came out of my life quake, was discovering a way to help people prepare for change, you know, Mm. by looking at astrology. I said to him, you're an Aquarian. I said, the lowest level of Aquarius is perfectionism. The highest level of Aquarius is humanitarianism. I said, you could take those same bank, because he's getting bored with his job, you know, even though he makes gazillions of dollars and could retire, you know, at the age of, of 49, 50, you know. So um, he he said, I, I, I want to do something for the world. And I said, how about you take those banks and see if they can fund, you know, because you're, you're helping them get into certain stocks and, and um, funds that your company, you know, supports. Put it into green funds or, you know, things that are tech, new technologies that are going to help bring water to the planet or something. And he got all lit up about this, that he could actually take what he was doing to another level, that he could be a humanitarian and help people make money, you know? Amazing. So. It continues to, to surprise me how diverse our awarenesses are. You know, operating in the circles that, that um, I've been operating in since I left high tech, very spiritual space, very rarefied spiritual space. 
And I sometimes forget that just simple, simple advice can shift people's lives. Absolutely. Just being, being a loving person, mm-hmm. go out and be a loving person today. Yeah. Can have such dramatic consequence for somebody's evolutionary path. Absolutely. It's great stuff. Okay, well, we're about out of time. Any last thoughts for our listeners about Abundanza or Lifequake or anything you'd like to share? I just want to encourage people to um, to begin the process of making the changes that are going to make their heart sing. And it's one tiny little risk at a time. It's not big, bold changes. It's what can I do today that's to move me beyond my comfort zone. You know, everything that expands your comfort zone allows you to master change more easily. Expanding your comfort zone. Absolutely. Nice. Okay. And if folks want to get to know you or your work a little bit better. Uh, they can either go to Dr. Tony at I, my, my website is drtonygalardi.com or Lifequake. If you just Google Lifequake, you'll come to me. I'll be doing a global telesummit that's free on June the 18th at uh, 8 a.m. And you can find out more about that by either calling 310-890-6832 or going to Lifequake on the Internet. And you'll, you'll you'll be able to reach me at either drtonygalardi.com or lifequake.net. Okay. And the Telesummit is, a, what's, give us a little background on the Telesummit. So it's called From Heartache to Joy. And she'll be interviewing me on uh, how I work with people in terms of helping them find their life purpose. Mm-hmm. And part of that is the astrology piece. Part of it is um, my Lifequake model and just the individual way that I help someone really find what they're here to do next. And then I work with people on a personal level, uh, either by phone or in person, uh, doing coaching, helping them go through major life transitions. That's my specialty. Fantastic. All right, Dr. Tony, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great conversation. My pleasure. And we'll be right back. Yes, we've added to our lineup of lively, thought-provoking shows. But don't forget our original Sunday morning lineup at 10.30 a.m., Join us for Healing Conversations with Mildred Lynn McDonald every first Sunday. Revolution with Heisey Lutmers every second Sunday. Convergence with John Carousella every third Sunday. And our popular on-air call-in show the fourth Sunday of every month. We're excited. Give us a listen as we continue to create new and entertaining ways for you to shine your inner light. Join us at Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. You know, I have a very pejorative interpretation of the word indulge. I bet many of you do, too. I looked it up in a variety of dictionaries, and here's what I found. From Merriam-Webster, to allow someone to have or do something, even though it may not be proper, healthy, appropriate, etc. From Google, To become involved in an activity, typically one that is undesirable or disapproved of. From the American Heritage Dictionary, to yield to the desires and whims of, especially to an excessive degree. But here's the thing. 
These definitions are not the first definition of indulge. They're all secondary definitions. The first definition is typically something like this. To yield to an inclination or desire, allow oneself to follow one's will, to yield to, satisfy, or gratify, to allow oneself to enjoy the pleasure of. And the root of the word, indulgere, means to be lenient toward or take pleasure in. How many of you associate indulge with excess and then guilt? How did we get to this place where acceding to your own will, allowing yourself pleasure, or gratifying yourself became excessive and guilt-ridden? There are probably many reasons, including a lack of self-discipline and the egregious wealth that has come to characterize the American experience, but at its very core, to indulge oneself is to allow one's will to be sovereign. To indulge another is to be lenient, to allow, to satisfy, or gratify another's desire or need. I'm coming to understand something that may be very common to many of you, but is quite surprising and interesting to me. It is possible to indulge myself well. No guilt, no erosion of self-discipline, no negativity. I indulge myself when I go for a hike in the middle of the day because it feels good and right and satisfies a desire. I indulge myself when I take a nap because it feels good and my body and mind receive great benefit from it. I indulge myself when I go to ecstatic dance or for a swim at sunset or when I go outside and soak up the moonlight in a state of bliss. None of these things are negative. None of these things mean I'm weak or an addict or an undisciplined slob. There are so many ways that I can indulge myself that make so much sense. And yet, in the culture of puritanical self-denial, we dismiss our healthy desires in favor of being productive. And yet those desires don't go away. They simply get buried and then resurface when our heads are not so clear. And that's when we yield to a different kind of indulgence, one that is laced with anger, perhaps, or resentment, one that is not well-guided because our capacity for self-discipline and self-awareness is depleted. I was at a CD launch party in Berkeley this past month. I had no idea what it would be like, but I figured it would be nice to go out and experience something new. I found that I was there among people I didn't know, in an environment that was quite foreign and unstructured, eclectic. There was a lot to do and see, and there was music, live music, and comfortable chairs. So I sat and listened, and I didn't have an agenda, and I didn't have any expectations, and I didn't want anything other than to be there. That may sound easy to you, but for me it was a major psychological barrier to break through, to just allow the experience to happen with me being there to receive it. No judgment and no resistance. And I had a great time. I bumped into a friend. I participated in the sing-alongs. I allowed myself to embrace the moment, the experience, 
and the pleasure. I indulged myself, and by George it felt fantastic. And I didn't die, and I didn't become corrupted, I didn't lose my self-discipline or my soul, I didn't become an addict, nor did I get productive exercise or make progress on a life goal or achieve a milestone or tick something off my bucket list. I just had fun. I realized something. To be entertained is an opportunity to set down your identity, to relax, to let go of your obligations or sense of agenda and simply receive to have no agenda and to allow myself to be transported by someone or something into a place of into a place of delight and surrender to participate in an unpretentious unguarded way in a very real kind of sanguine way this is the spirit of Beltane the Celtic festival that celebrates the life and vitality of a world in the full flush of springtime. That time of year when passion and ecstasy are close at hand. That time of year when life renews itself. How could this be a bad thing? And in a very real way, to allow yourself to be entertained is to say yes to an abundant universe. How could I have missed that? I'm planning to go to Lightning in a Bottle this year. I've heard it's like a smaller version of Burning Man, but with water. <laughs> Why am I going? Just for fun. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Carousella, your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows L.I.V.E. I truly enjoy putting this show together for you. It's an honor and a blessing to share what I learned from my guests, co-hosts, and personal travels. If you'd like to help, contributions in any amount are gratefully received. Send a contribution via PayPal to convergence at fireflywillows.com. Your support means a lot to me. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. Well, that's our show. Hope you enjoyed it. Take some time at this magical time of year to indulge yourself in the satisfaction of a desire. Be lenient with yourself or another. Experience and embrace the abundance of the world. It's okay. It's actually okay. We live in a garden. We get what we cultivate. Go out there and be mindful. Despite what it looks like out there sometimes, go out and sow love and tenderness and compassion and connection. It'll be a great harvest. Just a reminder that I'm at East West Bookstore in Mountain View each Friday from noon until 7 p.m. Stop by. I'd love to see you. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Caracella. 
Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for our live on-air call-in show, Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m.